Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. And first of all, thank you all for listening, tuning in to hear how we talk about things all the time. And I know that Katie, for a very long time, has really focused a lot of her professional stuff around sacrificial helping syndrome. Some people call it compassion fatigue. Some people call it burnout. And I'm really kind of perplexed that Katie has been able to do this for so long because several years ago, it seems that the mental health system just decided that if they changed their core mission statement away from therapist care and more to client care, that it doesn't matter how the therapists feel and burnout shouldn't exist anymore. (laughs) So because we now are focusing on clients, that should have fixed the burnout problem? If you change the definition, you fix the problem. Ah, if I don't see it, I don't have to worry about it. It's not, it doesn't exist. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much, yes. <laughs> well, I think that's what people would like to believe, of course, because, you know, if we're focusing on the work and why we do what we do, there is a certain aspect of that that helps us feel better. But you can't ignore that all of us are human beings with physical bodies that need tending as well as emotional and uh, spiritual needs and all that good stuff. And I think that part of that is wanting to pretend the problem is just not there. As our good friend Ben Caldwell has pointed out in some blog articles recently that part of the way that the system perpetuates this is we blame clinicians for their own burnout issues. We, we blame them for not doing enough for themselves, even in the face of all sorts of evidence that th- there's really more systemic problems around this. And if we're really boiling down what Katie and I talk about as far as the development of therapists as individuals, this is really kind of our modern therapist survival guide episode. This is the one where we're really getting down to the theory of how we see the system and the individual developmental tasks of becoming a therapist really in lockstep as being a minefield for burnout, for compassion fatigue, for sacrificial helping syndrome. (laughs) And some of this comes out of years of supervision practices, Katie's focus on burnout. And for me, from the supervision model, there's a, a very old article that I, I love going back to as kind of a tent post of starting to expand some of the supervision ideas. And while 
I, I don't always look at the developmental tasks assigned from this model, and it's been improved upon for years. This is uh, from Scovaltz and Ronstadt, Themes in Therapist and Counselor Development. They talk about the stages that a therapist goes through, even from before grad school to basically retirement and looking at some of the, the different central tasks that go along with that. And in today's episode, we're going to explore kind of how those go in lockstep with some of the regulations that are put out by graduate schools or by licensing boards and where there's a lot of opportunity for people to not hit their developmental tasks, not because of anything that they do, but because the system around them really doesn't provide them an opportunity to grow in that stage and to find that voice that Katie and I encourage. Yes. And I think one of the things that has happened is, is kind of what you were talking about. There's this kind of corporate model that, that especially when the economy is tight, businesses start setting up more of a corporate model where they don't provide the space for the, the accomplishment of these developmental tasks. It's, are you meeting your productivity? Are you managing your time? Are you doing the job to the letter and not really respecting that there's some space for growth and nurturance and self-discovery and assessment? And I think for me in looking at why this change has happened and how it's happened, it really, a lot of it ties to potentially trying to focus on client care and making sure that we're doing what we can for clients. But I think the other real piece is about this tightening structures and kind of the, and you've talked about it this way, Kurt, this kind of the cog in the therapy machine, looking at therapists as a part of a, a system of treatment versus as an individual who has their own needs and, and developmental stages. And so I, I'm really excited about talking about this because I think so often we don't recognize that the stages are even there, right? Like we just say, okay, we, we have to be a perfect therapist. We need to have all our hours like immediately on licensure or immediately on graduation. Like we need to do, we need to be the best therapist we can be in this moment right away without honoring that you got to kind of go through, you know, a big process to become the therapist you're going to become. And I don't say this pejoratively, which means that I, I should probably figure out how I'm going to say this so it doesn't sound pejorative. <laughs> But there's, you know, even even at the smell test, there there's a difference between somebody who's in their first couple of weeks of grad school versus somebody who's nearing retirement, just in the way that they hold themselves in or around clients or in or around professional situations. There's definitely kind of a uh, an anxiety that goes along with kind of the first couple of months of learning theories and figuring out what your voice is or being asked that question of, well, what do you want to do when you're a therapist? Kind of like asking a five-year-old, what do you want to do when you grow up? There's so much that they don't know and they're trying to integrate from so many different areas. And there's a, a natural learning step there that comes as far as trying to imitate professors, trying to imitate supervisors or theorists that they see on really old, boring training videos. <laughs> Some exciting training videos of, of seeing what other therapists do and trying it on for themselves, which a lot of educational institutions and supervision models suggest that this is really where role-playing should help because you should be doing that with 
within a training environment and not yeah. with clients. Don't do that while you're doing therapy. Do it while you're practicing to be a, a therapist. I agree with that. I do think that it's important that therapists, you know, the brand new therapists have that mechanism for role model before they get in with real clients. But I think there is something different and some new nervousness that happens when you start seeing clients for real. And so I think that that stage is almost, maybe there's some nuance in that, that whole beginning stage where you're really trying stuff on at the very beginning where you don't know anything really about being in being a therapist, except maybe any experiences you've had in therapy or what you've seen on TV, which certainly would not be a good place to start from when you're developing your own therapist identity. But I think that when you're first starting it out, you're, it's almost like you could be like reading the book with your, your, you know, your fellow student, your colleague over here and saying, so it's time for you to do a, um, a desensitization. Like, I mean, it, it can be something where you can really start feeling it out and identifying the interventions, but there is that next stage of starting with a client and you're still going to be trying stuff on. You're still going to be imitating at that point. And I think it's a necessary part of the process. There's going to be mistakes and we want to make sure that we're mitigating them as much as possible with really good supervision. But you and I both have talked about times we took supervisor advice early in our career and it didn't go so well. <laughs> so it's part of the process. And, and this is the, the transition into the, the next developmental stage, which is not even when they're first seeing their clients, but after you know, maybe a few sessions when they've seen some success as far as, okay, I, I have three sessions in with a client with general transition life issues, and they have not died because of my therapy. Yet. <laughs> so, feeling, feeling a little bit confident here. But this is probably one of the most crucial times because mm -hmm. in learning this and balancing now where we, we start to look at some of the educational rigors that need to go around this, and it might not have anything to do with the content of classes, but meeting an hour requirement for graduation, or uh, I'm seeing more and more students these days who are picking up a second practicum site or working a fourth or a fifth mm -hmm. day at a practicum in order to make their hour requirements, that way they don't have to take an extra or two extra semesters on in order to graduate on time or to wow. save, save the money of being able to, you know, not have to invest that much more into a, a master's or a doctoral level education. And the more time that we spend doing therapy and kind of at this max capacity of doing things just for the hours. Mm-hmm the more prone we are to not actually learning because there is something that is learned outside of the sessions of either, you know, doing the deliberate practices and learning about, yeah. you know, reviewing your tapes or even just not being in the space of a crisis situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that some of those practicum sites or traineeships can be where folks are constantly in crisis because they're working with the, the clients with the highest level of need. Hopefully, you know, schools are not putting folks in practicum where it's really high risk and, and you know, kind of highest level of need and the most dangerous kind of place to, to make mistakes with clients that are actually at risk for suicidality, homicidality, those kinds of things. But I do know that when people graduate and get their, their registration number, 
they can often end up in those those settings. And so being in crisis or whether it's a crisis with the client or it's your own crisis because you need to get those hours to graduate, like it just, it, it really doesn't set up the framework to learn. And it's, it's very sad because I, because I, I know for myself, I, I was privileged to be able to do my, my grad school full time. And, you know, I had like little odd jobs around, but I was able to really dig in and do my practicum. I was able to then focus in and I, and I did do get paid jobs when I graduated, but I did not have to have a full-time job while I was going to grad school. And I know that is not the case for most folks. And I saw a lot of my colleagues who were struggling because they were constantly exhausted with full-time work, potentially not in the field. And they're doing full-time grad school and they're doing practicum. And I just, there's just no space to even think and feel and, and, and explore and identify the bandwidth is gone. And so I think there's a huge issue there where, you know, when people don't have the space to develop their skills, they're not learning, they're just moving forward. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. And there's two major points that I want to hit on just from what you've just said. As we move into kind of that postgraduate sort of, of time, our biggest development as therapists at that time comes from those that we surround ourselves with. We're, we're kind of at that point of independence away from needing to turn in papers and follow the academic schedule that's laid out for us. It, it becomes kind of more of this amorphous time of mm-hmm. oh, now I can go and meet these licensing board requirements. The people that we surround ourselves with during that time have some of the biggest influences in how we approach the rest of our career. Mm-hmm. And the huge danger in that is if it's in a non-supportive work environment, agency environment, where the people that you spend the vast majority of your time with are those high-risk population clients, and you have supervisors or administrators that the little bit of time that they're spending with you is focused on productivity or notes, audits, or things. Or even just high risk. Or even just high risk, yeah. Yeah. That the the systemic position of burnout is it has rippling effects because this is the time when you're really developing your voice is kind of that postgraduate time. And so if there's not a focus on how are you as a therapist at this time, if there's not a, how are you taking care of yourself? If you're still in that burnout mode, if you're still 
spending all of your time doing work, are you setting yourself up into a healthy atmosphere going forward? And this brings into my second point, which is there's so much that we compare about things that we do kind of in comparison to what a, a medical professional might do. Mm-hmm. And so how would you want your, your medical you know, surgeon dealing with something on their downtime? Well, do you want them studying all the time? Well, in, yeah, some, but I would rather have a well-rested surgeon cut me open than somebody who's jumping from job to job and is, you know, yeah. not, not burnt out himself. Well, and I, I think we, you know, I get your point and I certainly want a well-rested surgeon, but I don't know that we have that either. So, <laughs> I mean, I think about the, the rooms where they're sleeping for an hour and, you know, that kind of stuff. I think, I think the docs have it bad too, but I, I want to respond to what you were saying because I think so much of, of the way that we develop and, and you've talked about this and I think it's in Ben's book. You'll, you'll correct me if I've mis, miscited it, but the best we become, usually our skill level maxes out. Is it like 50 hours in? Like where, where do we max out? So what you're talking about, it is cited in Ben's book, Saving Psychotherapy, but this is also research done by our, our, our favorite person, Scott Miller. Got it. Got it. Um, but <laughs> the, the average therapist kind of peaks in client effectiveness somewhere around 70 client hours of experience. Okay, so 70 client hours. So if we're looking at the 70 client hours, most likely that's happening during grad school. Probably right? about second or third month of practicum, yeah. Second or third month of practicum. So hopefully these are set, these, these practicum sites are set up to nurture folks during that time. But let's say you kind of let's let's even if we were to start fresh from graduation you get your registration number and you've got 70 hours from that point right like even if we were to say hey those 750 hours or whatever 500 hours you get in grad school let's even restart now that you're on your own and say okay 70 starts there so even if we were to expand it out cuz cuz i think there is some space in grad school to learn but i think some grad schools do it well some don't they kind of leave leave it to their students to try to find a practicum site and people are grasping at straws and may not have the best learning environment. But let's just say, even if we were to start it right after the, the first job after grad school is going to determine what type of therapist you are. If you're in one of these public mental health, community mental health sites, that, that setup is I have to survive. I have to hustle. I have to run really fast. So that's the therapist side. And then the clinical part is, if it's not on fire, I don't know what to do. Like case conceptualization is not as, as f- focused, except if, if a client has very high risk. And so there's, there's a lot of that that gets left out. I think in private practice, there may be more time for case conceptualization and, and some of the clinical, but there's not necessarily the n- number of clients to see to be able to really practice and develop quickly. And, so, and then there's the, the money fears. So I think there's, there's so many pieces in this where we don't really set up an environment that supports our associates, our pre-licensed associates in becoming the best therapists they can at the most critical period. And that worries me. Unfortunately, the criticisms of pre-licensees working with these most difficult or most in need populations tend to focus on the clients aren't receiving the highest care that they can or the best trained care that they can. And this isn't to diminish that criticism, but this is to look at the other half of this is that we aren't training 
associates at their best time for development with clients that allow them to get into good habits of case conceptualization, of being able to document. So this is one of those things where the systems around mental health treatment and funding put people at their most vulnerable time of developing their voice at the same time that they're working with the most difficult clients in situations where they don't have the support or the time necessarily in order to develop into being the best trained therapists that they can as individuals. Yes. Yes. And I think that they're learning something different, especially with when they're working with the most vulnerable populations, is they're not learning how to be therapists necessarily. They're learning how to be crisis managers. And there's so much between kind of your run-of-the-mill, you know, kind of life transitions clients and folks who are at risk of, of dying or killing someone else. I mean, there's, there's swaths of people in the middle and there's so much clinical intervention that can be used. But, but in truth, when we're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if someone is at risk of dying, if someone is at risk of not having their primary needs met, appropriately therapists are there, but they're not doing therapy. I think they're doing case management and, and risk assessment and crisis management. And, and that is in and of itself a road straight to, to vicarious trauma, right? But it's also a huge, huge indicator that burnout is very fast because there's so much that's going on. It feels so out of your control and there's never enough time to accomplish things. And all of those things lead to traditional burnout, much less the stuff that goes with the vicarious trauma. And so as the hour requirements go up for either licensure or graduation, what that does is that puts most pre-licensees into a situation of how do I accrue these hours as quickly as possible? And I have spent a very long time, including on this very podcast, including in my teaching in the universities and in a number of discussions with pre-licensees all over the place is that slow down, mm -hmm. spend some time learning how to do things right. Because once you hit that hour mark and you go and get licensed, then you're still going to have to learn these things anyway. And you're probably going to have to do it if you're in a private practice setting all of a sudden because you're licensed, then you're going to have to do that on your time as opposed to, and at your cost as opposed to potentially being trained in a place that might slow down and focus a little bit more on training than it does on accruing hours and meeting productivity standards. Where is this magical place where people can slow down, get paid, get paid for training and, and be able to take the time they need to learn? Because I think that's the systemic issue is that it, there's, I don't know where this magical place is. I think there are some, some individuals who have started putting together either amazing group practices or agencies that have figured out the, the model to make sure that, that they can do it. But so often the margins are so tight, productivity, running like a chicken with your head cut off. Like so much of that seems intrinsic in how these things work. And so I, I feel for the pre-licensees who are saying, I need to get my hours as quickly as possible so that I can have control over my income and I can have control over my training. And I think that this is something that Katie and I have discussed very, very quickly in the background and off air, but I almost feel like we need to create a, <laughs> an award system for agencies that really do hit on a lot of the important points that we talk about, the you know, Therapy Reimagined Awards. You know? Yes. <laughs> uh, 
but the the problem becomes is there's there's another systemic thing that I've seen, and I'm familiar with this because of the teaching standards here at the master's level in California, is since I graduated my program uh, just over 10 years ago, the, there was an educational shift that added a whole bunch of credits before needing to graduate from your master's program. And really without a super strong evidence that this actually impacts client care anymore. But what came through this educational change was that most courses now needed to include a avenue that dealt with recovery-oriented systems of care, which basically boils down to how Katie was describing of working in an agency setting earlier. Now, this followed a trend of more and more pre-licensees working in agency settings to get their hours in order to graduate on time. So there's systems that are happening at a legislative level. There's systems that are happening at a funding level. And there's kind of a sociological system of pre-licensees that's setting them all up against kind of invisible forces that they don't necessarily understand because, A, they're learning theories rather than being able to be involved in advocacy and being able to understand how these systems develop. But when there's not really an evidence that these things benefit clients, but we're now training people in therapy developing programs to be case managers, we're now putting them into job positions that does not utilize their skills as therapists. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I agree with that to a certain extent. I actually took some recovery-oriented supervision. Um while I was in community mental health. And I, I really actually love the recovery-oriented model. And I think it actually was a step in the direction of supporting clinicians and understanding clinicians as people as well, because it really was trauma-informed. It, it kind of, in a lot of ways, leveled the playing field for therapists and clients to make client-centered work, also relationship-centered work. And so I, I see what you're saying because I think when we have primal needs that are not being addressed, like housing or food or survival, it's really hard to dig into intensive therapy work. Um, and so I do think that there is a, a crossover that's happened and I think there is it's probably gone too far. The agencies that I've most enjoyed working with both as a, as a supervisor and manager, but also as a clinician were ones where there was a dividing line, where there was a case manager who was doing case management and a clinician that was, was doing clinical work. And I think that helped people to get more help. And, and so I, I liked that better because it really did free those things up. But I think too often, you're right. I mean, there are clinicians who are case managers, clinicians who are, are spending time writing up requests for funding for their families to get you know, rent as, rental assistance, you know, but I think it's, it's something where I don't want to say it's all one thing or the other, because I do think that at least in the initial stages, if there is ways for nonprofit organizations, especially those with government funding can get 
a system in place to be able to both train their clinicians well and pay them and have reasonable caseloads, I think that's that's where we start. And I think the ones that I've seen that are are starting to do it are the ones who have really good managers, private, you know, public mental health, um, usually Department of Mental Health or Behavioral Health, you know, whatever it's called and wherever. But the ones that that have that kind of standard funding, when they've figured out how to structure their their systems, I've seen therapists get really good training, work with oftentimes, you know, the most vulnerable po- populations with the highest level of need, but it's not a magical place because there's still the productivity. There's still the corporate environment of how do we do this stuff. But that's where I've seen the closest. I think there are some group practices that are getting close as well, but it's the pay and, and all of that stuff. When you've got a larger structure, sometimes it's easier to, to pay clinicians when you have more funding and larger structures. So I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I don't want to say like, oh, well, you know, nobody in public mental health is getting good training because I know that's not true. I think there's some really great training that's happening in there. I hope that I'm not coming across as public mental health doesn't train therapists. What I'm hoping that the, the point is, and maybe I need to boil it down just to this point, is that there's separate systemic processes that are happening in funding, in education, in legislation, that if we're really talking about the developmental needs of a therapist, that the needs of the therapist are coming last. Mm-hmm. And that because of the way that therapists develop, they're not going to recognize it until after they've burned out, until after they've been chewed up by the system. And so from that individual therapist sort of need, this is the approach. I don't have the, the background in managing a, an agency in, in the same way that you do and in the same way that a lot of other people do. But what I do see is that for us to have a sustainable system that we really do need to focus on the individual therapist and their ability to have an emotional response mm-hmm. as part of their job. And that's part of where uh, an EFT-based supervision approach can really help is that it, in other theories, it might you know, be called countertransference. But I think that in some ways, the discussions around having countertransference are interpreted by a lot of developing therapists as having countertransference is bad. You mm-hmm. should avoid having it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think really embracing the emotional responses in a structured way, this might mean more supervision focus on it and less supervision focus on, you know, the checklists of working in an agency that might have small margins, but having more of that allows for that development as a therapist, that development as a case manager, that development to be able to express recovery oriented systems of care in a much better way. Mm -hmm. And it's really taking out the cog in the machine approach and really embracing the individuals who are currently the cogs. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there are definitely, there's definitely, but the majority of the agencies I've interacted with have work to do there at least a little bit, if not a ton. And I think, I think, you know, I'm looking at the time and we do need to finish up, but I think, so this is a part one maybe of the developmental stages, but I think it's, it's this piece of, Figuring out and and from a from a systemic point, those of us who are in the system are advocating for the system. 
figuring out what is the model that can work where we can actually train new clinicians well, give them space to, to have emotions and, and process their countertransference or their, their own uh, responses to the, the session material and pay them and still have an ability for the person running the, the organization to also make a living that they can sustain. And that it's, it's something where it's, it's almost, it feels magical. <laughs> but for those of us in the, on the system side who have been around for a while, I think we need to find it. We need to talk about it. For the people that are entering the field, I think it's really looking and identifying how can I find myself in the best situation and that's the hard one. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is a systemic change, and this is what Katie and I are hoping to really not just have conversations about, but to start impacting the systems around us through mm-hmm. our hashtag therapy movement, through our therapy reimagined conference. Uh, it's coming up here, like so soon, weeks, like like <laughs> the next second. <laughs> Like but, blank, and then we'll have the conference. <laughs> uh, but this is what we're trying to do, is trying to unite voices that can come together and make changes because changes are going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's having a position of being a stakeholder in this discussion that allows for these changes to not just look at things from a, a management perspective or an educational perspective, but from an individual therapist perspective as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you haven't already, come join us at the Therapy Reimagined Conference. Super awesome, Simple Practice has graciously been our platinum sponsor. Uh, There's tons of people are coming. but (laughs) Yeah, we uh, get lots of cool people coming. And and lots of speakers, two days, 15 CEUs. And if you're not able to come, join us in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Survival Guide group. And help us move this conversation forward, help us do something with this. So I I think it's so important whether you're able to join us at the conference or join us in the Facebook group, please join the conversation, but recognize that this is not just a conversation. We're going to be starting to do stuff and we need your support. So please join us. Until next time, I'm Kurt Whittelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest-rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.